and, and as you guys write about like Hegel, like his whole philosophical system had this like historical component. And so like, what is, what does kind of, you know, progressive history look like if we don't really believe in progress, you know, like in this moment, you know, I yeah. think that that is a real kind of, you know, both disillusioned Marxist and a certain kind of, I think the 1619, you could say it's a disillusioned kind of liberalism. They don't really believe in the, mm -hmm. in the yeah. moral arc of the universe, you know, coming to save their bacon anymore. Hello, everyone. Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. History. History is kind of important. Uh, George, Phil, hello. Jesus yeah. Christ, Alex, what kind of an opening is that? I thought you were going to describe You're supposed us supposed to say, like, in, talk to our listeners a bit before just saying history is important and then handing over just, to us. That's what you say, abandoning intellectual responsibility, which is the opposite ooh. of history. Okay, okay. So let me say a little bit more. It's uh, Wednesday, the 27th of April. My name is Alex yeah. Hochuli. Yeah, Thank you. Yes. Yep. History starts yeah. with dates. Exactly. <laughs> starts with the... <laughs> exactly, yes. Just, just a sequence of dates. Um, obviously, that was the voice of George Hoare and uh, Philip Cunliffe earlier than that. Um, we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about history. Uh, we're going to talk to Matt Carp, who last year came out with a fast fascinating essay called History as End, um, followed by a sequence of dates. Um, and you're going to hear me interviewing Matt in just a second. But uh, before that, wanted to, I guess, put a little bit in context what our own project is uh, in this um, podcast and what we aim to do and why history matters, which sounds stupid because that sounds like, oh, you know, you should really go and read your history books, which you should. But um, we want to put in a little bit more political terms, because basically, you know, we started off this podcast five years ago now, saying that, you know, we're kind of at the end of the end of history. And that wasn't just a kind of like, intellectual posture or something, um, but was really about a way of trying to understand where we are today, how it's different from the past, and then therefore, what the possibilities for the future might be. So it's a political thing. Yeah, I mean, it was stimulated by the feeling that there was greater um, possibility for meaningful political contestation. I mean, that was the original sense, at least that something had shifted from the end of history regime. The idea that uh, significant political contestation over basic questions of social organization had, you know, was foreclosed, shall we say. Um, so um, that was the kind of the, that was what pushed us. And obviously, and I mean, as we've we've said many times on this pod, um, it's a very, it's a particular cast of history, a particular mold, if you understand history in that sense of um, that its meaning is given from those kinds of political struggles over these very fundamental questions of um, social life, of public organization, um, and in the kind of uh, the formulation of Francis Fukuyama with the Eight Cold War, it was the idea of the clash between communism and capitalism. Yeah, I guess you could, <clears throat> you know, we, we sort of describe ourselves as almost like the history boys um, in, in one sense, we? but we, well, Did maybe. We it's the name of a, I've heard of it's it. the name of a film. Yeah, um, it's a film about a teacher who feels up his students. So you're trying to tell us something, George. The in one of the characters, I believe, in that in that film says that history is just one fucking thing after another. And that's exactly what we wouldn't say. There's a philosophy of history behind the book and the podcast, maybe. 
um yeah I don't, I don't know where I was going with that. Not much to add to Phil. No, nor do we. Um, I think an important point <laughs> about this, to bring it back to politics, is that traditionally the left has been understood as the party of the future and the, the right as the party of the past. Um, and that fell away in the end of history and we're all stuck in an eternal present. What's interesting about Matt Karp's essay um, and what I found really intriguing about it is that he argues and in relation to the United States and specifically recent battles about the past, specifically about the civil war and slavery and racism, that it has been the left or certainly at least liberals who have been more dedicated to plumbing the past, plumbing the past um, to be oriented towards history. Um, while it has been conservatives who've kind of given up on the past, like they don't have, it's not no longer a golden age to which they want to return. And so specifically, he argues that with, for example, the 1619 project, which the, um, you know, was hosted by the New York Times as a way to say that the real founding of America was when the first slaves arrived on American shores in 1619 and not the 1776, which is to say the American Revolution. And in a way, liberals want to just relitigate the past, portray the past as, as always with us, as these kind of continual cycles of oppression, which we can't really get past. Um, and so it's very, it's a very much an orientation towards the past, not necessarily in a conservative sense of wanting to return to it, but in the sense of saying, look, the past is always with us and we can't escape it. Um, whereas conservatives, uh, on the other hand, seem to have nothing really to say. Their attitude towards the past is completely incoherent and is only used in a very instrumental, uh, opportunistic way to troll liberals to say, actually, you know, this guy who's an American hero um, is actually a, a Republican. You know, like, aha, got you liberals. Lincoln was actually a Republican. And that's pretty insubstantial way to, to treat history. Anyway, I'm not going to continue just laying out his whole argument because uh, I talked to Matt and uh, you're about to hear that interview um, or most of it. Because uh, the last part of it, of course, will be for patrons only, followed by our after party. And of course, we'll have plenty to talk about. We'll be discussing um, whether the woke liberal reconstruction of the past, um, what its political uses are, um, how it relates to fear of the future, what conservatism really is now, and whether we today need to be trying to kind of restart a continuity with the past or just go, no, year zero, um, which uh, our own Pol Pot, Phil Pot, um, would, would no doubt argue for. Anyway, jokes aside, catch you on the other side. All right, so I'm very happy to be joined uh, by Matt Karp here. We met at the kind of Bunga in New York event uh, a couple of months ago. It was great to chat with Matt then, and I'm really happy to be able to be, uh, to be chatting to you now. So we're going to be talking, of course, about this essay of yours, History as End, 1619-76, and the Politics of the Past, which came out in Harper's last year. And this was so thought-provoking for me in terms of looking at the his the different relationships to history of liberals and conservatives today and how those may have even flipped around that, um, yeah, I'm really happy to be having this chat. Totally. Yeah, with the Bunga event was great. We actually got to sort of buttonhole Adam Tooze on the end of history three days before, yeah. um, you know, the end of the end of history was unveiled once more with, when the tank rolled into Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it, it was it was it was it was it was an interesting moment. Yeah, I, I think that'll if I forget everything else about the event, I'll kind of definitely remember that 
um, the, the kind of the sort of auspicious moment that it was in terms of, yeah, I think it was actually literally the next day that, that the invasion started. So I think it was, yeah, I think then, and then two, you know, fully ascended into the, you know, the ether of, you know, the transcendent punditocracy yes. in which, you know, there would be no unimaginable that he would have the space for a, you know, a, a night of bunga casts, you know, bloviating at the bar uh after that invasion because he you know was having to speak to 17 foreign ministers in a row exactly um, yeah. yeah um yeah. but anyway that, that was great um but as to the as to the question at hand which is that uh, which is the past i mean the thing that struck me real recently um is of course in the context of the sort of iconoclasm of tearing down statues that you had with Black Lives Matter, you've had previous episodes of that relatively recently. And even now, in reference to the war in Ukraine, I uh, uh, some friends of mine in Germany have sent me links to um, images from Treptower Park, where there's this fantastic, sublime, hugely impressive uh, monument to the Red Army, and, and uh, you know, which was built shortly after the end of the Second World War. That and long, it, powerful broadsword, yeah, yeah. It's just, and the whole the whole place is just so gigantic and so amazing. And it, I don't know, it, it, it's rare that a monument like that would take my breath away, and it and it did when I visited it a couple of years ago. Anyway, so they some some vandals have sprayed on it like Putin equals Stalin, death to all Russians like all over the monument, right? And it's just like, obviously there's various ways to take it, but it's obviously this sort of attitude to the past, which is just completely lacking in any sense of contextualization or understanding that, you know, I mean, it's completely incoherent, right? I mean, the fact that Ukrainians were part of the Red Army who were <laughs> who liberated Berlin every, and all the rest of it, right? So it seems to me like, that right there and and even and you know people i think toppling monuments to lincoln during the black lives matters protests um so it seems this attitude to the past which is really confused it's not even just we're going to destroy any symbolism or any symbols that relate to the hated enemy of the past but even what supposedly theoretically should be um things that liberals or maybe not liberals but progressives and radicals identify as their own history yeah, it was interesting because I mean, so the, the piece that I wrote, you know, you know, began with the, you know, the destruction of Monument Avenue in, in Richmond, Virginia, which was the kind of, you know, the Champs-Élysées of the Confederacy, where you had, a, you know, a succession of monuments, starting with Jefferson Davis to Robert E. Lee to, you know, Stonewall Jackson and, and, and others in, in a row, uh, these, you know, monumental sculptures that all of them now have come down either by, you know, state order or by, um, you know, popular, you know, tying ropes to Jeff Davis's waist and dragging him out in a, in a little, in a little car. Um, right. You know, so, and in some ways it's, you know, uh, this represented for me that moment, you know, the, the moment of the destruction of, you know, hundreds of Confederate monuments, at least, or, or scores, I think the number somewhere in the 100 to 200 range, um, you know, in some ways, obviously as a historian of the Civil War and as a, you know, as someone on the left, this is inspiring to the extent that, you know, it's, 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 it's an ongoing and kind of at this point, almost like banal outrage that there are, you know, so many monuments to this monstrous regime, you know, on the soil of the United States. And, you know, the one, one thing that this recent outburst of protest has done in a minimal way that I do, you know, strongly support is remove, you know, a, a good number of those monuments, especially they've been almost comprehensively removed in the places outside of the former Confederacy where they existed. And that's all good. 
at the same time, yeah, the the the, the essay, um, you know, was really interested in exploring the ways in which um, the you know this this uh, in some some of the same spirit that um, that that I think in a, in a, in a powerful and, and, you know, genuinely like lowercase p progressive way, um, is intent on, on, on rewriting much older reactionary ideas about the civil war in America has also kind of moved in, in a lot of other kind of higher, you know, liberal cultural forms from the 1619 project to a number of other influential books, um, and essays, you know, in the kind of post George Floyd moment. Um, uh, uh it, it actually is not, you know, the, the the destruction of Confederate monuments has not been accompanied by a kind of, you know, a Union army or an emancipationist triumphalism, mm. but rather the reverse, a kind of a theory of history uh, or a, a remembrance of the American Civil War in particular as as a as a as a, you know, almost as a site of ongoing oppression or in some ways in a lot of these newer accounts, you know, um, coming from broadly the liberal left in America. Um, you know, the Civil War itself actually disappears. So you move almost directly from the Confederacy to racial oppression in the Jim Crow South to redlining in the 20th century to, you know, the host of, you know, murders of unarmed black men today. And it's this, it's, 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 you know, paradoxically, even as you're, as you're tearing down monuments um, to a sort of a repressive and antagonistic, you know, uh, reactionary past, um, there's a kind of, uh, you, you know, a real um, disinclination to think about the past itself as a moment of struggle when reactionary regimes were toppled and, you know, popular movements did come together to produce change and, you know, uh, in favor of um, real emphasis on on, on 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 origins and on continuities uh, and on the kind of in a sense the paral the paralyzing weight of uh, of, of the past in 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 U.S. history, mm. um, which you know it's a very odd way for me as a historian of the U.S. Civil War to think about this period as a period of continuity or of paralysis when right. whatever the Civil War era was it wasn't it was that it was the opposite of that it was the most transformational revolutionary violent. Um, you know, moment politically and socially in American history in, you know, in 250 years of that history. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, on the one hand, I think, as you kind of suggest in the article, is that both in terms of our moment in which we have no historical memory, um, the, the end of history and a sort of discontinuity from the past in the, in the sense of without any consciousness of it, right, that we just kind of live in an eternal present. Added to the fact that in the United States, as you say, it's the kind of worst trope in, in about the United States that Americans have no historical memory and so on. In that, but even taking that with a, you know, seeing an element of truth in that, you'd think that, oh, well, it's a good thing that there's an attitude now which wants to turn to the past. And you think, well, that's good. You know, that's um, a way of breaking through maybe a sort of, you know, postmodern eternal present, right? To kind of go back and look at the, the past and rediscover progressive moments or inspiration from it and trace a continuity between whatever the American revolution to today and to what we might want to carry out in, in revolutionary terms today or something like that. And instead it seems to be kind of the opposite. It doesn't serve that purpose. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, it's the, you know, yeah, it's the, it's the, you know, diametric opposite of the, you know, the usable past. It's the kind of, you know, useless past, which is, which I don't think is quite, you know, fair in some ways to, to try to give the most sympathetic account, which, you know, I guess I suppose in this podcast, there's really no reason to, 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 you know, be unwantedly generous towards, you know, ideological uh, enemies. <laughs> 
But but I think I, I always feel like that that still sets up the strongest possible critique. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the, the people who are who are kind of pushing this vision of history, this, you know, in which, um, you know, historical change is really muted in favor of an emphasis on continuity and on the kind of, you know, um, you know, almost continuous blanket of especially racial oppression in the United States think that they're just sort of simply by in, by the act of of, of, of of radical exposure in their minds, they're, they're actually, you know, presenting a more bracing critique to the present than, you know, it, from, from their perspective, a kind of an older liberal um, conception of the past in which it's like, well, two steps forward and one step backward, you know, and in which, in which, yes, uh, you know, you know, the liberalism of, of a Barack Obama speech, you know, in other words, you know, yeah. where, you know, the arc of moral, you know, of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So there's going to be hiccups along the way. And, you know, sure, you might not like that you can't afford for your rent or you don't have health care now, but, you know, it's just the next generation is going to fix it. Like we fix slavery and civil rights. And um, and I and so I think in some ways, the sort of the 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 genesis of this comes from, you know, some of the conditions that, you know, you guys talk about on, on the on the podcast in the book, uh, the the kind of the 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 collapse of a of a of, of the more complacent complacent and complacent politics of of the of the end of history. Um, and yet and yet the, the 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 sort of formulation of them in in this new version of history um it, it it whether willfully or not, and and this is an interesting question. To what extent this actually functions as a as a sort of this politics? Some leftists would say this this kind of past obsessed, you know, um, or racial origin oppression obsessed kind of politics in an outlook like the New York Times is actually you know serves as a function to divide and suppress authentic you know, left or, or class-based or populist movements, mm. um, you know, regardless of its intentions or, or, or its, or its impact, I mean, those are interesting and we can discuss them. I think, I think it's it just intellectually in, in practice, it, 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 it is disabling, um, as a, you know, it, while purporting it may be in some way, uh, for some of the, the authors of, of these pieces or, or, um, you know, they're, they're sort of advocates in, in the media, um, this vision of American history, I mean, it, like from my perspective, is is really barren of um, not just concrete usable past, like we need more hero narratives, but it's barren of a sense that history itself is amenable to radical change. I mean, I know yeah. we, you know you said maybe we wanted to get to some of this later, but like there was a there was a nice line in 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 your guys' book about how in the, at the at the end of history, um, you know, political change was not just repressed but sort of actually foreclosed, and I think that is sort of instantiated in some way in the um the the structure of a lot of this sort of new originalism in which history in the sense of the long chronicle of the past is highlighted but um the, but history in the sense of uh, 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 as a as a space where um political contestation happens or change or political transformation and change happens is not only sort of you know sidelined but is almost like sort of unimaginable from this mm, perspective yeah and in that sense it's like it's an obsession with the past that is in some ways a vision i think if you wanted to get a little bit fanciful in, in his reading a vision that is it's obsessed with the past but not history if you will yeah um yeah. you know it, it's the past as imagined as a sort of a very long tale of a hopeless present you know in which 
um, you know, political struggles, if they're even recognized, are, um, you know, frail and kind of overdetermined, you know, sort of and whose failure is overdetermined by the, the sort of the coordinated strength of, of um, you know, in the, in, the, in the case of the 1619 Project or something, you know, I don't know, racial capitalism, if you will. But, um, but um, you know, even though that phrase isn't used, that's more or less the logic of, yeah. their, of their presentation. But it's not, I don't actually know if that would be it would be it might be possible to produce a 1619 project that's not centered on race um that that still uh follows its same kind of originalist and sort of you know um um paralytic approach to quote-unquote history that is sort of a history without history um it might yeah, be I, possible to do that in other with other kind of you know focuses yeah, um i yeah. think yeah I would be interested, like even just as a as a sort yeah. of intellectual exercise, be interested to see yeah. if you could actually like cook something up like that. But yeah, it does seem to me that the the superficial liberalism of the sort of Obama speeches, and you know, maybe I think you even trace it back from Kennedy through to Clinton through to Obama, right? right? And that if that superficial reading of history also kind of wrote out struggle from the whole from the story, um, political contestation and so on, that you just you know, if the arc uh, of history bends towards justice, it seems to happen almost automatically. It's a bit kind of Whiggish and so on, right? It's just, um, you know, America overcomes because there's some essential spirit there that allows it to overcome its contradictions or whatever. Um, and then the response to that superficiality is just to replace it with pure darkness, I guess, right? Where history is just this story of continual oppression rooted in its original sin, rooted in this, original originary moment which then is able to explain everything right um right and i i pay I, there's the metaphors here are seem to be doing a lot of work that i sort of pay attention i'm not the first to notice this but i think it's worthy of extended comment you know the, the extent to which you know the idea of original sin um you know the sort of the, the biblical metaphor if you will and then almost even more importantly the idea of of America's DNA, in particular, racism was embedded in America's DNA. This this kind of biological or genetic metaphor, in which something is encoded, yeah. kind of white supremacy or anti-blackness or oppression is encoded into uh, into into DNA in a way that's yeah that is you know essentially transhistorical. I mean, I think you do have arguments of this. Nothing it hasn't been worked up in the way of the sixteen nineteen project, but certainly you saw arguments about that about you know, just thinking about, uh, you know, capitalism is embedded in America's DNA, you know, capitalism arrived with the first boats, you know, kind of historiography of the, of the, of the late 20th century. I don't, I, I think it would be very possible to sort of write a version of that history in which, you know, yeah, we're going to, history means in, in, we're really interested in, in dredging up every example of, uh, of an instance in which capitalism happened in America, you know, you, it wouldn't be difficult to find <laughs> yeah. to sort of accumulate an enormous amount of 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 of, uh, 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 of evidence on behalf of that preposition, you know. Um, but but I, I but I think you know intellectually, I have a lot of problems with it. We can we can talk about, but maybe more interestingly, politically, or maybe more importantly, politically, it's such a dead end in its even as it purports to be this radical slashing move that is going to chop Obama and Clinton off at the knees and discomfort all of the you know complacent liberals. It's actually, you know, it, it 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 replaces their, you know, nice little arc of progress with um, just this crushing burden in which, you know, people have this, you know, what's become a very common experience of late, this kind of almost like 
you know, sort of titillating, you know, encounter with their own complicity or their own um, guilt yeah. or their own. This has a lot and, to do with the class position, of course, of these readers and and what, you know, PMC politics is like today. But that's that's what's reproduced is the, these kinds of individualized experiences with this and collective struggle, whether it was the anti-slavery movement or the civil rights movement. It, it just simply doesn't appear. I mean, it's not a question of oh, let's explain how these collective struggles were derailed or uh, undermined. They, they literally, in the original 1619 Project, I think it's really telling, the, the, the book version has now added a, a chapter or two on those, but they're still really, um, um, you know, they don't receive the, the, the they, they don't carry the weight of the interpretation. Um, you know, those, those, those popular struggles just, you know, are, are not what one turns to this version of history to learn about. Yeah. No, and I mean, it seems that there's an element of historical repetition in what they're doing as well, insofar as it's of, it, there's a continuity with older kind of new left countercultural anti-Americanism of sort of, in, in, you know, instead of this glossy image of, of the United States and um, it's, you know, natural tendency towards progress, that there's actually this deep, dark history to, to the United States. But that and one thing that you hint at in the piece, which, you know, that was always kind of made by outsiders or they were outsiders at the time, whereas now it's an argument that is made about the United States, which is, you know, in the center of the establishment. Um, And that's an important change in terms of, you know, anti-Americanism in some way as I don't know if you'd characterize it anti-Americanism, but anti-Americanism as a sort of ruling ideology even. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because some critics have kind of, you know, um, taken 1619 and, and other versions of this, you know, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, which, you know, is a big best-selling book, which I guess, you know, I don't want to say superficially, but I think the, the its premise is to analogize the race racial system in American history to the Indian caste system. Um, uh, and in, in that sense is, you know, purportedly about a kind of making an international comparison, but in practice, Critics have noted it, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, is centered, you know, almost provincially on the United States. And in 1619, mm. too, you know, there's very little discussion of slavery and its afterlives in all, all across the Americas or anything to do with Africa or Europe um, or bound labor elsewhere in the world or, you know, racial, you know, <laughs> racial oppression elsewhere in the world. Not that, you know, and that to some extent, I feel like some of these criticisms are just the kind of grad school seminar kind of thing. Like, but you don't mm. address you know, like, and that's sort of beside the point. But but what you but um, it just makes me think because um, it I think it I think the both things are true. It's simultaneously the case that this project is um, highly internal and 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 you know it's it's its view of history I think is problematically specifically the history of slavery, which is you know um, you know paradigmatically a kind of international or transnational phenomenon it 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 is problematically kind of you know solipsistic in some sense and at the same time it does kind of draw on almost that out that tradition of outside in critique of you know the united states as the sort of center of um the the vanguard of a kind of you know world evil or something or yeah maybe it's too strong but um of a of a kind of of a very particular form of white supremacist anti-black oppressive oppressive, you know, history um, that is in some sense, the point of the spear in, in the, in the modern world. Yeah. But I mean, I guess that, that um, I guess sort of narcissism of it, of not even looking beyond the United States boundaries. And part of that is the fact that it's a completely moralized narrative in which slavery isn't understood as a mode of production. It's just, you know, bad, evil things that 
one class of people does to another. Um, but it, it, you know, that, that narcissism, I think is of a piece with a, with anti-Americanism, I guess, where it focuses on the U S on its, you know, as, as the nucleus of somehow of some greater, you know, world evil. Um, but it does it even, you know, if you, again, to bring in the contrast with kind of countercultural or new left anti-Americanism, where they might have rallied behind Vietnam or something. Now it's just like completely enclosed within the US. And that's kind of interesting. And it does bring me on to like trying to figure out what the political purpose of this is, because I have two interpretations to it, which are floating in my mind and they don't actually, um, I think they, they kind of are contradictory of one another. So one is that the attempt to, for example, with the knocking down of statues, there's an element of wanting to whitewash the past which would then be for the purposes of the present, right? So that now, now there's no more racism and everything's fine, right? And I think certainly in Britain, I observe that sort of tendency. And even amongst, you know, the establishment in Britain supported taking down of some of the, you know, slavers, statues and things like that. Not to focus on the statue thing specifically, because I actually find that discussion kind of boring, but it just yeah. as, a, as a representative of a wider, you know, approach, so there, you know, the establishment very happy to see, you know, mention of Britain's complicity with slavery wiped off the face of Britain's streets because the statues get torn down. And so that obviously is a, is a purpose of whitewashing. And then there's the other one. There's the other interpretation, which is actually in a way, in a way diametrically opposed to that, which is very much trying to say that the evils of slavery, of oppression, of racism, etc., are continuous, almost trans-historical, probably, and that refuses to acknowledge, for example, um, progress made in slavery. And so there, there's an element of reconstituting racism even today, which I think there's definitely a, a part of kind of left liberalism, which, which wants to do that as a way of maintaining its, um, you know, like basically sustaining its claims, making its claims still valid. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's another. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going back to your book, like some kind of eager, eager student or something. But <laughs> um, you know, I think one one interpretation of 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 this of this impulse in terms of what the where the politics come from that I was thinking on on you know going back to the end of end of history is it's a sort of a fusion or a, a recombination of some of the kind of you know the the what you guys call what is it neoliberal order breakdown syndrome some of that yeah. that elements kind of inability refusal to accept you know political change and it's and 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 inability to explain it like those features are really replicated with a kind of another strain of i guess which you would class as the in the anti-politics world of um of um left defeatism you know it's like late it's a sort of neoliberal i mean because what's interesting about this politics in terms of where it's coming from it's coming from the ivy league the new york times you know the atlantic magazine yeah. it's coming from these bastions of the liberal order in that sense it has very little to do you know in terms of its kind of positionality with marginalized ultra radical scholars from the new left who are largely you know red baited or hounded out of you know mm. at least the most prestigious positions in academia this is all coming from all the people who win the prizes and give the prizes you know 1619 won the won the pulitzer you know so it's 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 coming. The call is coming not just from within the house, but from the penthouse in some sense. And so I <laughs> yeah. think that's automatic. The positionality of it is, you know, arouses suspicion as a as a purportedly radical critique, and I think rightly so, just from a kind of a, a really vulgar materialism, which you know is often 
you know, you know, hits the hits the bullseye eight, eight out of ten times. But um, but I think but I think what what um, it, 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 it's at the same time it is infused with this with these elements of new left or or even you know new new post left kind of defeatism um, in which. Um, it's not just simply a kind of, uh, I, and I think it's actually in its in its conception, it's really not a whitewashing. I mean, I think it, 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 I don't want to call it blackwashing. That sounds that's prop that just that's maybe feels wrong. <laughs> yeah, that just feels problematic. You know, take that out. <laughs> but um, but um, but I feel like it's a kind of um, but in some ways, actually, that metaphor. You know, leave it in. It's fine. That metaphor because it's just a metaphor. It just kind of um, it it it. It, it, it almost has the same kind of purpose in reverse to, to sort of, you know, cover all of the bumps and jaggedness of history with this one unified narrative. And it's interesting, I just go back to something you said earlier on, you know, the way that 1619 depicts slavery, not as a labor system or as a material system or as a class system, but as, you know, something, you know, done, you know, you know for moral reasons. I mean, actually, you know, what's interesting, I mean, broadly, I agree with that. I think that that's the larger conceptualization, but there are these interesting attempts to kind of really connected to, you know, constitutional democracy and how American, the American system is connected, you know, oh, you know, the, you know, our divided, you know, mangled anti-democratic government owes itself to slavery, you know, fair, fair enough, honestly, mm. but then more, less convincingly to some extent, um, you know, capitalism itself, you know, there's a long essay by the sociologist Matt Desmond about, you know, essentially trying to say the origins of JP Morgan are on the slave plantation, which I think doesn't really hold up. Um, mm. as a historical claim. So I, but I think it's, it's worth one questioning what the political logic of that claim is. And I think on one level, it's like, I, I really think a lot of people are captivated by, this is the sort of the, the left liberal worldview, are captivated by the idea of this being the most bracingly powerful critique one could make of capitalism is to identify it with you know, yeah. identified, you know, the most obvious moral crime that we all agree, even the right isn't pro-slavery anymore. Um, we know that, you know, it, it's just this sort of a version of, you know, red in tooth and claw, but, but, but not just capitalism is like that everywhere. It's that if we can fix this origin, we've, you know, we've really nailed it to the wall in some sense. Yeah, it's and, ultimate gotcha, right? Like, you know, right. All, all of other capitalism's evils, and indeed it's contradictory tendencies that it throws up great things and bad things um is is kind of wiped out and just in favor of this gotcha of like aha but it's it's racist and therefore you know and th that strikes me as indicative that they don't really have a critique of capitalism not a, not a proper one it's you know that that it's racism is the ultimate evil which underlies capitalism rather than the other way around Right. In the end, it's a material analysis that just comes back to rest on a kind of greater moralism, because the idea is if you can fix the moral wrong, then, you know, you've effectively won the material argument without trying to understand, you know, what capitalism's relation to to class or to interests are and what its formulation looks like, you know, even across the 19th century or specifically today. And I mean, this was this is a more cynical read, but I, I, I do toy with this in the piece. And I think it's a fair thing to say that, like, Obviously, when you when you're when you're saying that, you know, what what caused J.P. Morgan, the answer is Virginia slavery. You know, you're letting J.P. Morgan off the hook, obviously, yeah. you know, and you're kind of almost teaching a generation of, you know, of uh, or, or, you know, encouraging, you know, potentially politically, you know, um, you know, I, I guess I don't know. Um, 
you know, politically engaged, you know, either students or this is because this is going to end up being taught in a lot of schools or, or, you know, just general kind of middle class readers to sort of regard this essentially as a, as a, as a moral problem, as a kind of a humanitarian question, um, rather than as one that involves, you know, force and power and, you know, and, you know, was, has only been contested or even in some way, um, you know, softened by really radical collective struggle, um, you know, even to get social democracy, as we know. Um, there's just none of that in here, you know, and it's like, where do you go to sort of, so in that sense, I'm, I'm really torn as to where to locate this as, as is this, is this tendency a product of the end of history? Is it a kind of a delayed kind of attempt to hold on to that politics? Or is it, I think it's more authentically, it is a, it is a product of the post-Trump world because this was all written and conceived 1619 particularly, but a lot of this other stuff that kind of um, has, you know, emerged in response to Trump, um, you know, as a kind of mm -hmm. threatened, you I know. Think that's, I think that's, I think that sounds more convincing just because yeah. the end of history period is so characterized by a complete unwillingness to really even talk really about the past. It's just boring, right? Right. Um, and right. Or certainly yeah, like true. maybe we, not, in, not in academia or in, in certain kind of more intellectual circles, but I mean, more broadly in the public sphere, I think there was just not an interest in talking about the past. It was, you know, other than other than, of course, to reconstitute the monster of fascism here and there whenever it needed to be appealed to. But that, you know, itself is something which becomes comes even more to the fore kind of in the end of the end of history, basically in the, in, throughout the 2010s as the neoliberal order begins to fall apart. Um, so I, it does seem to me like uh, you're right that um, your suspicion seems right to me that it's something very much of the post-Trump world, this, th that the liberals now want to turn to the past in some way to, to have a wedge in contemporary politics. I mean, and of course, it's not, as you say, in the service of transformation. Um, I think there's a great line in it, which is that um, in, in the essay, how can a history grounded in continuity relate to a politics that demands transformational change? And I guess the, the whole point is that it doesn't, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did want to move on to conservatives because this is the other side of, yeah. the, of the coin, which is really interesting about this. So on the one hand, you have liberals kind of wanting to plumb the past now in a pretty some way anti-historical way, you know, as we've been talking about in the way that you portrayed it in searching for this original sin, um, rather than trying to look at history as change. On the other hand, you have the fact that conservatives seem to have abandoned the past altogether um, in favor of incoherence or nihilism, as you put it. And I think that's great. And I think actually I would want to just make it, take the opportunity to refer listeners to an episode we did last year, the year before with Corey Robin um, called The Right is Weak, um, which I guess treads sort of similar grounds, but basically the, the intellectual bases of conservatism have gone. And I think that comes to really strongly in the piece. So maybe talk, talk us through how, the, you know, what, what is the nihilism and or at nihilism or incoherence of the right in the place of its previous defensive tradition in the past? Yeah, I mean, no, and Corey is somebody who's who's been really influential on me in terms of thinking about, you know, this sort of outsized place of history in this moment, you know, for liberals as well. But, um, you know, and why historians are suddenly, you know, writing all these explainers and getting, you know, are in the news everywhere post-Trump. It's like there is this kind of, you know, um, um, 
you know, kind of historical expertise in, of a certain sense, um, you know, which generally purport, uh, you know, almost inevitably ends up making the same argument as in this horrible thing that's happening today happened before and it was horrible. <laughs> it, it's never about uncovering the strangeness or the kind of, you know, the, the, the crookedness or the unevenness of the past. It's almost always about just replicating the past and the present. But anyway, that's as we, you know, we've been there and talked about that side of it. The, on, on the right, it's really interesting. Um, um, you know, my argument, because I, I think, you know, I guess just to begin with the way that the sort of the conventional understanding of what Trump has meant for for history or for conceptions of America is is not at all as a retreat from the past. It's a kind of, you know, in, in one conventional kind of media account, it's Trump as this purveyor of 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 a very, um, you know, of a kind of an unmasked white white nationalist embrace of Andrew Jackson of you know he's defending the confederacy to some extent mm -hmm. he you know he says Robert E Lee was a great general you know he's kind of baiting liberals so a, a, a kind of um, one interpretation is that you know what trumpism has really done is actually reactivated these kind of really deep organic conservative racist um, kind of impulses on the american right that revere the past and kind of, you know, lament the, the confusions or the multiculturalism uh, of the present. Um, and no doubt that exists. You know, there were guys carrying Confederate flags in on, on January 6th on, the, on the, the Capitol riots and so on. And there are, you know, the, there, there's, there's a continuous, I think, you know, pre-Trump and it's going to last after Trump, uh, you know, hardcore of kind of ultra-right Confederate nostalgia, especially in the South and, and you know, outright um, you know, white supremacist or, or borderline white supremacist stuff. But I think, so it's not that that doesn't exist, but I really disagree with that conventional wisdom that that's the dominant energy on the right, because I think clearly what the right is doing, you know, and in particular, you know, right media world around Trump from somebody like Tucker Carlson to, you know, Dinesh D'Souza or Ann Coulter, I talk about D'Souza a lot in the piece, but actually, to some extent, they've really done in a way that I think belies much more of their sort of cynicism and nihilism than 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 a kind of return of a of a of a of a deep, genuinely you know traditionalist you know reverence for the past is kind of accept this progressive narrative. You know, yeah. I mean, D D Dinesh D'Souza is the most extreme example of this, where he did a whole documentary about how, you know, the Democrats, you know, opposed civil rights and supported slavery. And the whole premise was, you know, Jefferson Davis was a Democrat, um, you know, uh, Mississippi senators who stopped civil rights were Democrats, you know, yeah. and they're the bad guys. The Republicans are the party of Lincoln and they're the party of, I mean, and Trump clearly does this too. Yes, he said nice things about Andrew Jackson, but he also famously said nice things about Frederick Douglass and, you know, um, you know, who's getting more and more recognition these days. There is this kind of um, um, sense of the past is just a sort of a grab bag of potential ob of sharp objects that can be used to zap a political enemy and, you know, essentially, uh, a kind of arbitrary desultory trolling is where you know is where the is where yeah. uh, is how i feel like the right uses the past in in these kinds of ways there's really not even in the in the george floyd moment i mean i thought some of the absences were really notable you know um the right by and large is in tucker carlson never complained about the removal of confederate statues he he, he tried to draw the line and say it's bad when they're removing lincoln or teddy roosevelt um, but he did not make a big hue and cry about specifically the Confederacy. And, you know, the Republican Congress agreed to Juneteenth, you know, unanimously, this holiday celebrating emancipation during the war. There is a kind of, you know, functionally, without in a way admitting it, 
there was a kind of an acceptance of, uh, on one hand, a kind of a progressive narrative his, of history, and then a, a kind of a trollish attempt to manipulate it to undermine contemporary liberals or contemporary leftists. But to me, that that yeah, that that's that that speaks to the kind of the poverty of this historical imagination. There's no that the, the right hasn't successfully in the age of Trump, the American right hasn't successfully mustered a different version of the past that can really challenge even the Obama-ish narrative, never mind yeah. the sort of new 1619 project narrative. Now there are, you know, anyway, so, and that was almost more interesting to kind of, you know, contemplate, you know, the 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 poverty, the weakness of that, of that position right now. Yeah, I think that's, you know, very striking, you know, that there are, that there aren't defenders of the lost cause anymore, that Confederacy isn't tolerated anymore. And I'm trying to kind of put this, piece this together a little bit mentally with the description that you've given of uh, of the liberal side to things who at the end of the day have strikes me as having won because the right is fighting on their terrain um, or is, you know, happy to, yeah, effectively ha- happy to accept their terms of struggle. Their terms of struggle are anti-racism. And so they just claim their own figures um, on, on, you know, for, for their own cause and it seems like in that case, you know, you have the end of the end of history. You have liberals feeling like the neoliberal order is slipping away, challenged by this fantasy, really, of Trumpism, you know, rising of this kind of radical right, the demons of the past coming back. And so they reach for this idea, this historicist, historicist idea of original sin. But then the the right is actually much is actually weak, despite what the liberals try to imagine, and can only fight back with trolling. And it's just that I think the picture that comes out and comes out from the essay and comes out from what you're describing here is just such a vacuousness about this of, of this opposition. It's really striking. There's a weakness on the right, but I think in some ways that historical weakness or that is, you know, the, the right's lack of interest in history in other ways, you know, reflects a degree of real strength in that. It's it's not overly kind of debilitatingly preoccupied with fighting these specific historical battles. You know, I think in that sense that, you know, that the that the right is is kind of cynically, at least the sort of leading figures on the right in that, you know, Trump Carlson sense are cynically aware of, you know, the political utility of the past is to serve the present. You know, in that sense, this is totally heretical to say in, in certain precincts, but like the kind of political idea of Frederick Douglass, you know, I closed the piece with this, you know, my favorite line from him, where he's like, you know, to all of the, you know, treasures and, you know, horrors of the past, you know, um, you know, we, um, you know, we're welcome to, to use those, but now is the time, now is the time that matters. And there is this kind of, you know, urgency of now that, I think in some ways the right cynicism about history, you know, reflects an understanding of that, that, um, that, you know, what matters is galvanizing opinion and mobilizing people now. So on Mm -hmm. the one hand, we can embrace the kind of, you know, uh, you know, when, when necessary, we can, you know, speaking to one audience, we can rally on a certain kind of old, you know, you know, old fogey traditionalism. In another context, we can kind of talk about the heroes of, you know, right-wing anti-racism like Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass. In a third context, we can kind of complain that, you know, critical race theory is, is you know, teaching kids to hate America. And all of these things, even though they may, they may all reflect different kind of ideological emplacements or different historical interpretations, they all are useful in certain contexts. And, mm. you know, um, I think it's true that 
I think it reflects the, the the ideological weakness, but maybe the political strength of the right. Maybe that's the way to put it. Yeah, no, that I think that I think that's maybe that sounds right to me. Though I guess the 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 question is, I guess, what is this right? Because you know, can it be described as properly conservative? Um, probably not. I mean, not if it has lost all kind of connection to the past in 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 such a way. Um, so I I think that's kind of maybe it's nationalist. Like, I mean, I think you can say that. I think its most dominant kind of energy is is nationalist and anti-liberal. You know, I mean, I think, and I mean, I mean, again, you guys, I continue to come come back to the end of the end of history, but like, you know, in terms of the formulation of where the energy on the right is going transatlantically, it's more towards a kind of anti-liberalism than it is towards any sort of coherent real project on its own. Yeah. That you know is capable of taking on various welfareist modes but also capable of, you know, working very, you know, working hand in hand with, you know, with capital. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, I think, it, I guess to, if you wanted to sort of emphasize what, what it's defining core is probably a, a kind of nationalism. Yeah. And, but, but I think that the, the fact that both are so reliant, both sides in this are so reliant on reconstituting the other in their own imaginaries as powerful forces and powerful historic forces, you know, I think to me kind of gives light to how weak those both sides are. You know, liberals need to reconstitute racism, need to trace a line of, line of continuity from 1619 to today and say that everything that is the United States is drenched in racism and oppression um, to perpetuate their project. And the conservatives need to say, well, you know, the liberals are coming in to indoctrinate your kids at school and whatever else. Um, and it exposes the yeah the weakness of both sides, and I think that's that's kind of you know interesting in its own in its own right. And I what, the thing I, I wanted to ask, which I guess it's sort of related to this, is that you know does anybody have a golden age? Um, you know does any do either of these sides in the relationship to the past, which is now in some ways flipped around, liberals wanting to plumb the past and conservatives wanting to kind of forget the past or treat it completely. Uh, incoherently or opportunistically, whether there's any genuine reference to the past, whether there is a golden age for either. Okay, dear free listener, general public person, uh, that's the end of this free episode. Uh, we hope you're enjoying it. If you want more of it, and I hope you do, that's over on Patreon. You'll hear the rest of the interview with Matt Carp, followed by our after party. We hope to see you there, patreon.com slash bungacast. <laughs>